Thank you so much, Terry, and uh, good to see you. I wonder whether you've had the experience that one member of the family is watching um, a serial on television, a weekly serial, soap opera, or one of these um, big uh, series that come out, and the other, another member of the family dips in occasionally. Have you ever had that experience? So I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, and it'll reveal which one you are. And then you can think which one I am. You probably guessed already. So when this happens, the challenge is that as the program is going on, the third edition of this particular series, <coughs> there's a discussion that goes on between these people. And the one who missed out is saying, so what did he do last week? Uh, and why is that happening? And why is that lady suddenly appeared on the program? And the person who's really clued up on the program has a very difficult choice. They can stare them out. They can answer the question. They can tell them to shut up. Or various other less repeatable things. Which one are you? Are you the one who dips in or are you the one who's there regularly? I'm the one who dips in. Because I'm not so focused on those things. And my wife, normally Jane, she's, you know, following the series. And I dip in. And I always want to ask difficult questions halfway through the series. We've got the same danger this morning. Because quite a lot of you weren't here last week. And some of you were. Some of you are visiting. But you won't understand this talk unless you understand last week. We're in the fifth chapter of Galatians. And Paul had traveled around, just to summarize in a few sentences, to a new area. He'd never been before. No one had ever preached the gospel before. It's called Galatia. It's a province in the Roman Empire. And he planted a number of churches. And he taught them unambiguously that if you want to believe in Jesus... You don't have to do it by rules and regulations and human achievement. The only way you can be saved is if you thoroughly believe that he died on the cross for you, rose again, you repent of your sins and you trust him. And you'll start a new life and the Holy Spirit will come and live in within you. Now that seemed a really fairly straightforward proposition to those who heard and they believed. Paul left went back to the city he came from, a city called Antioch, and he heard a little bit later on that some other people had come into those very same churches and contradicted the message. They'd actually said something different. They said, Paul got it wrong. He only got half the truth. Actually, if you want to become a Christian, you, there's quite a few regulations. Christianity's got a rule book. Here's the rule book. You need to do all these various things, things about diet, things about special days and, uh, and uh, the religious festivals and things like that that came out of Judaism. Paul then heard about this, got really angry, and wrote this very vitriolic letter, uh, uh, Galatians, to the church saying, hang on a minute, you know, you're divided between two opinions. There really is only one gospel, and this other message, quite frankly, is wrong. It's not just an alternative. It's going to lead you completely astray. That's what we talked about last week. And we talked about the message that he gave back to these churches. He couldn't come and see them. It was too difficult. The only way he could communicate with them was by letter, so he wrote a letter, this. it circulated around all the different churches he planted, and he made his position unambiguously clear. Justification is by faith alone. We heard it in our worship. Some of the things that said, you know, we can't, uh, we can't depend on any of our own achievements to bring us to heaven. 
Do you believe that? It's a very fundamental Christian belief. The trouble with that is it begs a question. So although the audience listening to what Paul had said, which we discussed last week, would have said, oh, thank goodness for that. Paul's clarified it. We don't need all these rules and regulations. There's an interesting challenge. So, for example, if somebody says, yeah, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized. I know I don't have to earn anything. Then how should they live if there aren't any rules and regulations? Now, there are the commands of the New Testament. Paul wasn't talking about them. There are some commands, but it's not like a big rule book. So how should we actually live? And Paul, in this second section that we're going to come to now, and I'm going to read this text to you in a moment, he addresses this issue in extremely clear terms. What, and he answers the question, which a lot of people really don't understand, which is basically what happens after that salvation moment? What is it that determines the de direction of the life? I mean, it looks as though you can say, right, I'll have Jesus, I believe in Jesus, then just go off and do whatever you want. That's what it looks like. No rules and regulations, then surely we can do whatever we like. And Paul anticipated that thought, and he had a very robust answer to it, and that's what we're coming to today. He's actually teaching these young Christians in Galatia what to do. He's basically got three things in his mind. He doesn't want them to get in a legalistic mentality. He's aware that they could just go off and do their own thing and say, well, Christ has set me free and quite frankly, I'm just going to go off and have a good life and do whatever I want. And it's either that possibility or there's a third possibility. And it's the third possibility which is the theme of our talk this morning. And that third possibility is a much deeper understanding <coughs> of who the Holy Spirit is and what he actually does in the life of a believer. Let's turn with Galatians 5 verse 13 if you have a Bible. Um, this is coming up on the screen. Galatians 5, we're going to read from 13 to 26 which is our passage for today. Just read it all the way through, and then I'm just going to make some comments. But you, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's free of the law. Rules. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That word means sinful nature. The inclination to do your own thing. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law, that's the Jewish law, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. This is a reference to the division in the church that was just starting. He said, you know, don't get divided. Don't start biting each other. And then he goes on to the key, this is his key theme coming up next verse. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not 
gratify the desires of the flesh or sinful nature. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit <coughs> is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This truly is a, quite a majestic passage, actually. It's a very, very central uh, theme of the New Testament and Paul's teaching. is to explain in some depth what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Let's just think about one or two steps in his arguments. First of all, he says, you've got to get this legalistic mentality out of your mind. Don't go back to the rule book. It'll always be a dead letter. It's never going to lead you forward. But the second emphasis is really, really important. Verse um, 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, to go down selfish ambition. So Paul acknowledges that a Christian, although free from the overall control of sin, because he's given that sin over to Christ, he's been forgiven, and the Spirit is living within us, we still have, and I don't need to persuade you of this, a residual battle, if you agree with that. There's still something within us. It's not the totality, it's not controlling us, but it's what Paul calls the sinful nature or the flesh. It doesn't mean just literally the body, it means the inner nature, the orientation towards yourself rather than God is basically the simple way of putting it. There's still an orientation there in us. And so his second step in his argument is to say, don't give in to that selfish orientation. When you feel it coming, you bring it to the cross. You, you say, no, I'm not going to go down that road. And we all know that in life, almost all the time, there's that temptation, something that animates yourself, but you're not, you don't really think it's God's way, drives you forward, and it can drive you, can increase in your life, and it can gradually consume you. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that experience? We've all had that experience in all sorts of different ways. When that happens, we have a choice. About 10 years ago, I organized a, an important event for a social group unrelated to church, any church, not a religious thing. And an interesting thing happened to me. I was organizing it with some other people. And you know what happens with these kind of things. People talk about 
in social events about each other behind each other's back, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, someone said to me, oh, you know, Joe Bloggs didn't like the way you organized that. He called you A, B, C, D, E, F. Okay, unrepeatable. I had a choice. Because that was a wind-up for me, I can tell you. I put a lot of hard work into it. Ever had that feeling? You put a lot of hard work into something and then people pull the rug. And they don't even come and tell you straight. So I was getting animated about this, thought, what am I going to do? This, this is someone I would meet fairly regularly over the course of time. So I'd be bumping into them. You know that? It's quite easy when you don't bump into people. Have you noticed that? It's when you bump into people that you face the reality of what's going on in your heart. And I was talking to Jane, my wife, about it and saying, oh, it's not fair and blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, rather belatedly, maybe I'll just talk to the Lord about this. Well, it's a good idea, by the way. Sooner rather than later is my recommendation. I was opting the, for the latter option. And do you know what the Holy Spirit said to me as clear as anything? Let it go. Just forgive that person. It's a one-off comment. Don't know the context. Don't know what's going on in their life. Say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to give in to my tendency, which is to be very self-defensive and to be uh, uh, always right. You know that sort of thing? Ever come across people always right? I'm sure it's not you. But um, there's always that tendency in all of us to want to be right and want to be vindicated. And the Lord said, no, I, I'm not interested in that. Just let it go. So I forgave that person, and I meet them now regularly. Never been discussed. That's not an issue in my mind anymore. Because, but I had to make a decision. It's not just feeling, oh, I might feel better about this if I have a few drinks or watch the telly or let some time pass. Now, this is different. Now, it's a different process. We're talking about decision. I just let it go. And as I think about it now, it's just not an issue. It's just a storm in a teacup. But actually, some storms in teacups become hurricanes in your life. But you keep stirring it because the flesh gets the better of the spirit. And so Paul is saying to the Galatians, you know, don't think that you're the perfect person just because you've been saved. There's still a journey and there's still something in you that's going to rise up in a selfish kind of way in all sorts of situations. And when that happens, you have to make a really clear decision. I'm not going down that road. And ask the Holy Spirit what the best way to proceed is. And so the interesting thing about this passage, if you actually look at it, Paul uses four expressions about the work of the Spirit. They appear in verses 13, 18, and 25. I'll just read them to you again. Walk by the Spirit be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. Now, these are four expressions of the same idea. And the idea, if I can just capture this idea for you, is that the Spirit is our, our companion and our guide in life. And He's with us on the journey. And if we don't really understand that, we don't, are not enabled to really engage with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in order to illustrate this to you, I was just thinking, what would be a good illustration? I'll give an illustration from mountaineering. This is a human experience of mine that really 
resonates with uh, this concept. Many of you will know if you're mountaineering that you, in many contexts, you need a guide. And there's some people, of course, who don't need a guide and they're perfect and they've got all their maps and they do it on their own. We won't talk about them for just a moment. But most people, especially if there's danger or unknown territory, will take a guide. Four years ago, just over, I was three quarters of the way up Mount Kilimanjaro with James Beardall, a lady from New Zealand, and two guys from America. There was five of us in a team. We were three quarters of the way up the mountain. We'd been on the mountain for about four or five days. It's about six, just under 6,000 meters in the summit. That's six times the height of Snowdon, just to give you a context. And one of the hazards of the mountain is what's called mountain sickness because the oxygen gets thinner as you go higher and your body is subject to unpredictable impacts. Nausea, sickness, headaches, lethargy, sleeplessness, and if those symptoms are serious, it can actually threaten your life. And you never know who's going to get mountain sickness, not related to fitness. It's just one of those biological things to do with how your body copes with oxygen deficiency. So there we are, camping in a camp at 4,600 meters, very cold, with our guides, our African guides, who divide the group up into three. And I'm with the Amer an American guy called David. We're like the middle team. There's a fast guy and two slower ones. So you, uh, you can guess which, which one James Beardwell is uh, in those. He was the one of the slower ones. Not that that's bad, by the way. So we went to bed about 9 o'clock in the evening, and the guide said, we're going to get you up at midnight. So they knock on the tent at midnight. Right, up he gets. And you have to do exactly what the guide says if you want to have success. Not everyone makes it. We get up, we get dressed, it's very cold, three sets of gloves, three, two coats, and, you know, head torch, middle of the night, and up we go. Right, in the dark, complete dark, and the guide, Tanzanian man called Lipman, is there with us, just slightly behind us. Okay, come on, David, my friend from America, come on, Martin, keep going, keep going. And then I'm striding off, and suddenly I hear the voice saying to me, Pole, pole, in Swahili means slowly. And me, I always want to achieve a lot in the first part of a walk. That's just my psychology. But he knows that the oxygen is so thin, if I go too fast, I'm going to collapse. So he says, Martin, slowly. Okay, sorry. Get a bit slower. Then I start speeding up again subconsciously, and the voice comes again. Pole, pole. Sorry, Lipman. He's guiding me. He's got my very best interests at heart. But he knows that I'm a bit headstrong, I'm very inexperienced, and I've never been there before. Sometimes in the dark, there's a division in the path, and you honestly don't know which way to go because you're completely disorientated. You've hardly got any light. And he says, Martin, left. Oh, thank you, Lipman. I was thinking of going right, actually. And so we continue. And as we continue, we encounter a Korean or Japanese lady by the side of the track, just having been violently sick and looking so white that a sheet would look black. She, was, she looked 
absolutely as though our life was coming to an end. And Lippman says, keep going, Martin. Don't stop. Shortly after that, we encounter a man being stretched down the mountain at great speed by two guides. He's obviously had mountain sickness further up, and they had this fold-up stretcher. They and down they go, and I'm going up, and suddenly, whoosh, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what's all that about? And he says, keep going. Don't worry about it. So we keep going. My friend is struggling. He encourages him. They get to the top. He advises us about rest. He says, stop here. You need breaks. I don't need a break. Yes, you do. We have a break. Then he tells us to get going. Tells us which clothes to keep on. Not in the dominant way, do you understand? And then comes the moment where we actually reach the summit. The light has dawned six hours later, 6.30 in the morning. And the beautiful sunlight is coming across from the Indian Ocean across Africa. And we are at the roof of Africa. And there we are. And it's a very emotional moment. My friend in America, from America, suddenly breaks down gives me a hug and says I'm his best friend and he can come and visit me in California anytime <laughs> he wants. <laughs> and which I haven't taken him up on yet. And I look at Lipman and I say, man, I am so grateful for you. Because half the people we encountered on the way up never made it to the top because they underestimated the effect of the mountain sickness phenomenon or they were overtired. I needed a guide. And when we went down again, he said, don't go too fast, because I wanted to race down. He said, that's not going to do you much good either. And that's the nearest analogy I can give to you from my human experience of something which is underestimated by many Christians. The Holy Spirit, he's not only in you, he really wants to be your guide. That doesn't mean dictating your every move, manipulating you, controlling you, sending you texts from a distance. No, he's, he wants your success. He wants you to be fruitful as a Christian, the very next thing we're going to talk about. But you have a choice, like I had the choice on the mountain. Shall I go with the guide? Am I going to trust this man? Or am I going to trust my own instincts and my own strengths? And he knew that I'd overestimated my strengths. And the Holy Spirit knows that we can overestimate our own strengths. But he can give us strength by being our guide. How does that work? We'll talk about that in a moment. But if we follow him as a guide, then come the amazing fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to just illustrate now. Isn't this incredible? Christian character is not something you strive for in a deliberate way by saying, I, I need to be more this or more that. Do you know what? It happens... When you strive for something else, which is to walk with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, says Paul, is love. Sacrificial, selfish, self sacrificial and selfless, selfless attitudes. 
joy, inner happiness beyond circumstances, peace and inner harmony that radiates out to other people, forbearance, a remarkable patience even when provoked by circumstance and misfortune, kindness, those practical gestures that mean so much, goodness, the moral character of positivity, faithfulness, that reliability that should characterize all Christians, gentleness, not over-pushy with our own agenda, and self-control when, the, when there's dangerous, dangerous tendencies from our own personality are evident, we know how to deal with them and not let them get out of hand. Wow. These are the fruit of the Spirit. He or she who walks with the Spirit will bear the fruit of the Spirit over time. Not in a sense of perfection, not always, not always consistently, but that fruit will grow and is growing in many of our lives here today as we follow the Spirit. This sounds great, doesn't it? But there are a few other things in Galatians which help us to give a bit of context to this. We need firm foundations in our mind before we can really follow the Spirit. And in the next slide, we've just got a few examples of these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you to be aware. First of all, if there's any confusion about the gospel, the saving power of Jesus, justification by faith alone, not by works, then we'll never walk in the Spirit. We've discussed that. But secondly, Paul elsewhere in Philippians makes another interesting point which we've emphasized through teaching that Dave and Helen have brought in the past and which I endorse very firmly, but I want to bring it in a different context here. That uh, according to Galatians 4 verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So one of the amazing transformations of the Christian faith is a change of identity within by which we come to know God as a father in an intimate and personal sense. The Spirit makes this real to us. And we have to get through all the baggage and all the complications and failures of our own personal history in order to do that. But if we know this is the link between the Spirit and the Father that's important. If we know that God the Father is really on our side, who really loves us, and he's not sitting there judging us all the time, then we're more likely to trust his Spirit when his Spirit begins to speak to us and says to us, go here, do this. Maybe avoid that particular circumstance. And sometimes the activity of the Spirit is to avoid things, things that might be dangerous or things that just might be wasteful. Not so long ago, I was invited to attend and speak at a small conference, and the other speaker at that conference was a well-known Christian lady called Jackie Pullinger. Many of you will have heard of her from Hong Kong. Now, I greatly admire Jackie Pullinger right from the early days of her ministry, read her books, and heard her speak in the 1980s. And the thought of meeting Jackie Pullinger was very, uh, a very attractive idea. I thought, it would be really interesting to see how this lady functions, working with drug addicts and so on in Hong Kong. So I provisionally said, yeah, I'll, I'll come and speak at that conference. Then I looked at my diary, and it all looked a bit 
difficult. And then I noticed that they'd put my name up on the conference uh, internet site as the co-speaker. And then I just prayed and I felt the Lord say, I don't want you there. And I realized that I'd been just drawn into that more by per some personal gain than by his calling. So I actually phoned up the organizer and said, sorry, I'm not coming. And as soon as I did that, I felt a great relief because I thought, I, I don't think that's the right place for me to be. Have you ever had that feeling? You're sort of going down a certain course of action and you're not quite sure about it. You pray about it and then you just pull back. You think, yeah, I might apply for that job, but no, I don't feel comfortable about it. If you ever get that sense of fundamental unease about a course of action, don't ignore it. Fundamental unease over a period of time. Don't ignore it. Think about it. Ask others. Ask the Lord about it. Very shortly after that, the same conference organizers phoned me up and said, there's someone else we want you to come and meet at a different conference. And his name was Brian Aldreve, and he heads up a, a project in Zimbabwe called Foundations for Farming. And I'd been wanting to meet him for 10 years. I looked at my diary, and my dates were clear, and I went to that one instead. I couldn't have done both. I had to cancel one before came the other. An extremely productive time. Just a little story. Those sort of things happen in my life all the time. Should I go to the left? Should I go to the right? What should we spend our money on? What should we spend our time on? How should we parent our children? These are things that the Lord is interested in. And if he's your father, he's actually interested in those things. And sometimes we think he's not interested enough. I won't even ask him because it's far too petty a detail in my life. Would God really be interested in that? Can I tell you? You'll be really shocked if you know how interested God is in the small details of your life. Not to micromanage them, but to help you to be really productive and to help you not waste time and energy by going down the wrong track. He loves you enough and he loves me enough. And we need to understand the significance of believers' baptism. We're baptized into Christ and into the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We need to make a decision to live single-mindedly for Christ. That's really what Paul is talking about when he says, you know, put to death the flesh, and we need to know that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, it's a person and not a force. It's not just power. It's personal reality. Now, we know that in theory, but it's those who know it in reality who understand what Paul means by walking in the Spirit. One or two practicalities to conclude. How do... What things have I found helpful to walk in the Spirit? Number one, immersing myself in the Bible. God's number one means of communication. Really encourage you to do that in whatever way works for you. Secondly, to set aside time to pray. If I face a difficult decision um, or some unease about something, nowadays I'm more inclined to just think, right, I'm just going to pause. Five or ten minutes. I did it this week over a decision that I suddenly had to make. I just sat down in my sitting room, happened to be drinking tea at the time, and just said, Lord, is it left or right? I don't know which way to go. It's not a habit we're in so often, but it's a wonderful thing. The more you just listen, the more you'll find he'll speak to you. And if you commit yourself to an active church life, that gives you the environment where you'll be stimulated to walk in the Spirit through worship, teaching, 
the leadership of elders, spiritual gifts, opportunities to serve, discipleship, the example of others and friendship and many other things. And here's not a small point. We can pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit every single day. Three more things and then I'm done. One thing that I found really helpful is be known as a Christian by your lifestyle in every context that you're in. This releases the power of the Spirit to work in you. If you're anonymous as a Christian, uh, I've noticed people who are anonymous as a Christian, the sense of the Spirit's presence in their life is often less. Just an observation. He wants us to be known. I don't mean pushy, just known. Use whatever spiritual gifts you have. And when you... Feel the sense of the leading of the Spirit. The other vital thing is don't procrastinate. Don't say, I'm sure God's calling me to do this, but I think I'll leave it a few years. Unless he's told you it's a few years. If he speaks to you now, it probably means he wants you to do something about it pretty soon. Some unproductive Christians know what they should be doing, but they've deliberately decided to put an interval between hearing and obeying. That's a dangerous interval. He's a dynamic spirit. He's got a purpose. So let's flow with his purpose. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Well, folks, I sense today that for some of us, that there is a real opportunity to make a concrete move to say, I really want to be more attentive to the Spirit in my life. It's sort of drifted. It's easy to drift just by accident. You know, you're busy with life and so on. But I really sense it's important for us to consciously open our hearts up to him. So in a moment, I'm going to invite people to come and just stand here at the front. I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back first. Um, so if they could come now. And please do stand. Let's stand together. I have great conviction about these things. And I want to encourage you. God is on your side. He wants to strengthen your Christian life. He wants to really build up your faith. He wants to build up your awareness of, of, of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you feel that's me in one way or another and you want to just be that little bit more open in one sense or another that's been implied, could you just come and stand at the front now? Let's just do that immediately. Just come and stand. We'll sing in a moment. It may just be a little sense of drifting. It may be something very specific you know that God wants to change. You can stand anywhere along here. Don't need to move to the center. Just make room for others. Spreading along the center, that's it. Just a moment for us before God. Father, we thank you so much that you sent not only your son to die for us, but you sent your spirit to equip us to live, to live for you. And so I just pray your blessing on every person standing here, Lord. I pray that you'll open up the doors for them. You'll give them faith and confidence 
to listen to you and to step out and to walk in the Spirit with power. In Jesus' name. Amen.